That game is not dead, which can eternal lie. And in strange closets, even death may die. This is the Veteran Wargamer. This is the Veteran Wargamer. I am your host, Jay Arnold. Welcome to episode 20. In this episode, I speak with my friends, Justin Palmer, Joel Franklin, and my brother, Chris, about resurrecting dead games. As always, the Veteran Wargamer is brought to you by Kings, Hives, and Games and Special Artisan Service Miniatures. World War II and ultra-modern 28mm figures. 3D printed vehicles and terrain. Premium painting and modeling supplies. Tim at Kings, Hives, and Games and Special Artisan Service Miniatures has all these and more. You want brand name products? How about Warlord Games, Corvus Belly, North Star Military Miniatures, Spartan Games? Not enough for you? How about Black Scorpion, Perry Miniatures? Elheim, Stussy's Heroes, still not enough? Let's add Ammo by MIG, Badger Airbrushes, Scale 75, Vallejo, Secret Weapon, Windsor Newton Series 7 Brushes, Four Ground Buildings, and Gamer's Grass. As you can see, Tim carries some of the best names in the hobby. Check out the wide selection of premium hobby products at kingshobbiesandgames.com. That's kingshobbiesandgames.com. When we return, my discussion with Justin, Joel, and Chris. And we are back. Uh, on this episode of The Veteran Wargamer, I'm pleased to state that we are joined once again by my brother Chris. Howdy, y'all. Uh, we are also joined by new guests Joel Franklin. Hey. And Justin Palmer. Hi there. Now, Joel, Justin, and Chris all recently attended my Jay's July Jamboree, uh, the seventh iteration of my annual week gaming weekend, and um, just I don't want to talk about J3 in depth real quick. I mean, we're going to talk about two of the games that we played, uh, because it has to do with necro gaming and resurrecting dead games, but um, it's safe to say that you guys had fun. Now, Justin, this was your first J3. Now, you came down for CJ3 in the in January, my brother's event. Uh, J3, slightly different... Uh, I don't want to say attitude, but slightly different atmosphere. I take it you enjoyed yourself? Very much so. CJ3 seemed to be um, a bunch of really short games, you know, something that might take an hour or two, whereas J3, you could actually set up a really nice big game and play it over pretty much a whole day um, there was a mm-hmm. lot because it was uh, at a residence well because it, because it wasn't in a hotel room there wasn't as much pressure to finish stuff early and we could take we could take our time with some with some bigger games that we might we might normally not get a chance to play yeah absolutely that's 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 a fair assessment actually I hadn't I didn't really think about that angle with the duration of games. We, you know, for crying out loud, we actually left a game set up overnight. So, actually, two games set up overnight. So, that's a definite difference. I won't necessarily say advantage, but definitely a difference. Um, So, Joel, Justin, uh, as is our custom here on the Veteran Wargamer, we like to see what makes our guests veteran wargamers. So, Joel, let's start with you. 
Well, on the veteran side of the equation, I was a clerk typist in personnel section of a brigade level headquarters of a core level supply unit in the Army Reserve. It was definitely not the stereotypical military experience, but I felt it was what I could do uh, back when I volunteered. I've been out for about 20 years, uh, served eight years in the Army Reserve. On the Wargamer side of things, I came to gaming as a 10-year-old when a friend of mine introduced me to Dungeons & Dragons, the basic set with the Arrow Otis cover, um, and also Star Frontiers. Hmm. And in my junior high and high school years, played a few RPG sessions in some um, Adol Hill Hex War games, mostly Panther Leader with a neighbor of mine. Um, you know, graduated high school, got married, didn't really do a lot of gaming for about 15 years. Uh, in the late 90s, I was collecting some out-of-print Star Wars, or I'm sorry, was collecting some out-of-print Star Frontiers products, including their spaceship miniatures, and mentioned this to a co-worker whose name happened to be Jay Arnold. He suggested I check out Full Thrust, and he also invited me to a game one Saturday where I played my very first ever miniatures war game for the Maelstrom. Um, never got to fire a gun in anger, but did get to throw some grenades and just started accumulating war games and miniatures. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think that's a yeah, that's a pretty common path. Easily half the guests I've had have started with D&D, it seems like. Uh, Justin, how about yourself? I'm sure this won't surprise you, but my, my path was a little stranger and a little more indirect. Um... I started off with a mixture of board and computer games. Board games would be uh, Axis and Allies when I was 11, which is a little vanilla. But then I got into um, way more advanced computer games with the old SSI. It's about, be about 1991 or so. SSI's Carriers at War and Gary Grigsby's Pacific War. And a lot of my war game experience was on the computer I went and bought a, lot, a bunch of the old Avalon Hill games, but surprise, surprise, when you're teen, not 13, not a lot of people want to play them with you. Um, and believe it or not, this was the first year I ever really met a group of people who liked to play those kinds of games. So that went on for about 15 years before I got to actually join the military and the Marines which was nothing at all like the wargaming experience I had uh, before that. I did three deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan that took about 10, 11 years on active duty and just got off that last year. Now I'm getting back into wargaming again, uh, reading uh, Patty Griffith's work uh, from Britain on committee wargaming. Uh, and the, the bridge for me was I got to do some professional wargaming uh, my very last year in the reserves mm -hmm. and came away with a lot of what I'm going to call questions about it and drawing back on what I did when I was younger and my military experience, I really want to see what the professional wargaming environment has evolved into and how it can be better used in an official capacity. Yeah, I think that's that's a potential topic in and of itself, and I, I think your your brother has been looking into that as well. And I, I think I, I'd love to have Christian on also to talk specifically about uh, professional wargaming. But he's actually uh, uh, doing one right now this week. So, oh okay, 
Yeah. You can ask him when he gets back. Yeah. Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, I definitely would like to and uh, discuss that in further further detail because what the military views as wargaming is not anything like what most of us would view as wargaming, that's for sure. Well, most of what the military calls wargaming are really staff exercises. Uh, the, the outcome is basically right. predetermined. They're designed to test a tactic or a theory, but they're very rarely designed to simulate. The red team rarely gets to actually win, which is actually which is actually a uh, directly opposite of what happens at our at the army's uh, maneuver training centers, such as uh, the National Training Center out at Fort Irwin, California, and Joint Readiness Training Center down at Fort Polk, Louisiana. Because on that one, the red team wins almost every time. Well, let's go ahead and get into what we're talking about on this episode, which is what I call necro-gaming, or resurrecting dead games. And I, I think that first we need to discuss what a dead game is. And I, I think the easiest way to describe it is a game that has had no official support for a significant period of time. And by official support, I mean some type of ongoing FAQ or maybe a social media presence, perhaps in the form of a, well, of a discussion forum dedicated to that game, you know, by, you know, created for and by the, the company that created the game. And, and I don't just mean support as far as playing piece availability, I'm talking ongoing rules development, new products for that game, etc. Is that, do you think that's a fair definition? I would agree. That sounds good. I want to take a little bit contrarian stance to that. No! Yeah. Really? <laughs> yes. You could knock me over with a feather, Joel. <laughs> the deuce you say. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a dead language is one that nobody speaks. Uh, you know, regardless of whether or not there's some, you know, language or further developing the language, um, you know, Klingon, I think we consider that language is basically a highly language spoken by a few hobbies, but nobody learns it from birth. Um, kind of by analogy, I'd say a dead game would just be one that no one plays now. There's probably quite a few games that are on life support. But I think a lot of games are a less dead than we might think. I'm going to stray a little bit from wargaming and talk about RPGs a little bit. But Dungeons sure, and sure. Dragons is a very active brand. It just released 5th edition last year. And I will say, reading 5th edition D&D made me feel the same way I did when I was 10, reading the very first uh, you know, basic sets. Like, this is so cool. Um, yeah. You know, I haven't really had that from reading some of the editions. You know, so the D&D brand is alive and well. But you look at, for example, the um, you know, first edition AD&D rules or the basic set rules, those rule systems, you know, by your definition, are essentially dead. And yet there is a very lively, and I think kind of you kind of pointed this, there's a very lively presence on the internet of mm -hmm. uh, OSR gaming, old school revival gaming, uh, with things like um, Osric and uh, Labyrinth Lord. Reproducing D and D and basic expert D and D respectively. So I would, I would modify your definition a bit, Jay, and say a 
an out-of-print game that has no forum traffic. You know, there's nobody really talking about it on the internet. I categorize that as a dead game. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair distinction to make. Something that we're going to be talking about here shortly is, you know, the the Warhammer 40,000 slash Necromunda mashup that we played at J3 this year. You know, Warhammer and Warhammer 40,000 as brands are certainly going forward. Uh, the rules that have recently been published, 8th edition, are markedly different from the original version, the Warhammer 40,000 Rogue Trader, and markedly different from 2nd edition, which is what we basically played over the weekend. The universe itself exists. It is modified, or the universe has moved forward from that time, but things are considerably different. But uh, but we can get into that a little bit further. One thing I wanted to discuss was it appears to me within the board gaming realm, fewer people talk about dead games than in the miniatures gaming realm. And I, and I mean specifically fantasy and science fiction games. Uh, miniature games. And I I think the biggest culprit there is that with a fantasy and sci-fi game, miniatures game, they're inver not invariably, but for the most part, there is an associated intellectual property with it. You know, case in point, Warhammer 40,000, very robust IP, very wide range of figures. Um, if you go back to the original figures, you're probably talking, if you took every single unique model that they made, and even if you include, you know, the parts, the plastic parts, and granted you can make a, a various, granted you can make a, any number of variant models off of the plastic figures and parts that they've made, but easily tens of thousands of figures have been made for Warhammer 40,000. I think we can agree on that. Absolutely. But there's a certain segment of the Warhammer 40,000 playing population that prefers the older rule set, the Rogue Trader and 2nd Edition set, you know, under the, the aegis of Old Hammer movement, which is something I discussed in a previous episode with Andrew Dyer. And we d talked about the various reasons for that, but... You know, that's, that's a different experience than going out and buying 8th edition and the current figures. So, does that mean I, that... I, w I would add that's a different experience from having an active gaming community that's excited about the new game and wants to sit down and play it with you at your friendly local gaming store. I guess what I'm getting at is... If we're playing previous versions of a game, I, I guess I would consider previous versions of a game, even if there is traffic to be dead, because there's no current support, official support. If we're talking about if we're talking about dead games, yeah, to to an extent, I can I would see that. I, I guess maybe it's almost when you're uh, talking about specifically second edition or. Uh, even third edition uh, Warhammer 40k, uh, as, as you said in the show notes, it's they're dead, but they're brought back to life by somebody else. So they're not truly dead. 
Mm -hmm. uh, it's, you know, like I said, uh, Necrohammer. Uh, you know, brought brought back uh, from the dead, uh, from uh, w with people who enjoy playing that game uh, and making adjustments as they see fit uh, to make the game a little more playable than what it was 20 plus years ago. So it was dead, and by all uh, extent, the the company sees it as being dead. But the resurrection of the the game by the fans no longer makes it a dead game. Yeah. Well, more to that point, uh, Joel, you mentioned a game that I think fits into this resurrected game or life support game if you want to refer to it that way is Full Thrust Absolutely. you know Full Thrust 2 came out more well actually like, what, 22 or 23 years ago now I think the copyright on the original uh, rule book is 1992 yeah so 25 years you know 25 years of Full Thrust 2 with the fleet books to update the rules, and then how many different fan-made concordances and omnibus editions and bringing everything together in one book have, have there been out, you know, are there out there? Exactly. You know? And right now there's, there's two versions, two primary versions of, you know, fan material that incorporate everything that Ground Zero Games has put out and their various rules and expansions as well as a few fan-made, fan-written rules. Mm -hmm. You know, I think one one significant distinction there, those rules were really um, intended as a support to the miniatures line that Ground Zero Games put out. And right. that line is still alive and well. You know, John Tuffley is, you know, casting off the Madman even as we speak. Those rules are available as a free download from his site, the original rules. You know, fan-made rules are out there. And kind of what keeps those alive is just the fact that people are still buying the miniatures. And, oh, by the way, here's these rules you can play. You know, but as a miniatures manufacturer, he doesn't care what rules you use as long as you're buying the miniatures. Right, even to the point that he has even gone back and remastered some of his line. Uh, the new Swabian League in particular, the new Anglian Confederation uh, in particular also. And... You know, as I guess as the molds wear out, he's getting new masters sculpted and and making new molds and re re releasing re releasing the lines. So that's you know, it's been said on many different podcasts by many different people that rules sell miniatures, and rarely is it the other way around. So agree one hundred percent. Yeah, and, and that's even the case for historical games. You know, John's got a good thing going. You know, he said a long time ago that he's not going to mess with the rules. Why would he? His, his primary business is selling figures. So leaving it to basically the fan base to work on, is it frees that off of his plate. He doesn't have to mess with it. And since ship models normally don't, really science fiction ship models normally you don't have individual weapons represented on the models you know you could come up with whatever crazy new rules you want and the models are still valid you know he's got the best 
best possible thing going. I mean, granted, he gave us a set of rules that are still fun and engaging 25 years after they were developed. But, you know, he's, for lack of a better term, washed his hands of it and doesn't even worry about it anymore. He just makes new toys. <laughs> <laughs> and if, so, you know, if I can plug his, his customer service a little bit, you mentioned the, the new Swabian League miniatures. Mike put together fleet uh, about a year ago. And I like his new cast, but there are a couple of ships that I remembered from his, his old product line. And just this big, huge Super Dreadnought and Battle Dreadnought. And really wanted some of those, but he doesn't sell them on his site anymore. And so I shot him an email saying, hey, is there any way you might still have some of these in, in stock? And he said, actually, I'll pull out the old molds and I'll cast some for you. As long as you understand they're old molds, you'll have to you know, do some work for the, the minis. And I thought that was just absolutely outstanding. That, mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't have them on the shelf, but he pulled the molds out and recast them for me. Yeah, I, that's I've I've ordered from John here in the United States a number of times, and I am continually amazed by, first off, the speed with which your package arrives. I'm not sure how he does it. Some people claim he has a wormhole generator, but <laughs> the packages from GZG in the UK to the US get here super fast, and every order I've ever made, he's always put in extra pieces of something. And, yeah, I can't... To the point that all of my 15mm sci-fi stuff is GZG. And I don't have anything else. And that's not necessarily me being a chauvinist. It's just I don't want anything else. That's all I want is, <laughs> that's all I want is his stuff. But, uh... Well, when uh, he produces the quality of stuff that he produces, you know... As quickly as he does and with the value it is, you know, why would you go anywhere else? But anyway... Um, I, I guess we can all we can always point to the ultimate game that doesn't have any support from the original developer, and that's chess. Right. You know, it, it seems to be doing fine on its own with what twelve hundred years of playtesting behind it at this point. Um, and I wonder, is are we when we're playing these older games, is there? Is there a nostalgia factor involved, perhaps, in some cases? Um, I certainly got a huge hit of, of positive nostalgia playing the Necromunda Warhammer 40,000 Second Edition mashup this weekend. I don't know about you guys. Um, Joel, you're, I know your experience is a little bit different, having never played Warhammer 40,000 before. I experienced but... no nostalgia whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, I pulled out my Rogue Trader era figures and uh, even some second edition Warhammer 40,000 figures and terrain. And there was, there was a lot of good there going on. Now, I've pulled out other games in the past and just did not get that good feeling. Um, case in point, oh, I guess it was probably about seven or eight years ago now. Maybe more recently, but anyway... Um, I got, I got with my friend Paul, and we pulled out uh, Renegade Legion Centurion, and I had some of the plastic models, and I got the sheets together, and we started playing it, and it was just tedious. You know, when we were playing in junior high and high school, I had a blast with this game, and actually even in, when I was on 
active duty in the army. Um, I just remember having a blast with the game, but when I played it more recently, you know, we had a platoon each, you know, four tanks each, and it just seemed tedious and slow and took forever. And I wonder if some of our experiences, if we were to go back and take a look at some of these games we used to play, if, you know, you know, nostalgia ain't what it's cracked up to be. And I wonder if there are some experiences out there lying that, you know, in some cases maybe we'd just, you know, leave things alone and live with our happy memories. Jay, I'm kind of glad you brought that up. I, I like to uh, toss in my own two cents. Um, so I start off by telling you one of the first Please. games I ever played was uh, SSI's Carriers at War, um, a game about carrier combat in the Pacific War. Well, Matrix Games re-released it a couple of years ago with updated graphics, gameplay, and everything. And I got it, and I was really excited to play it. But after a little while, the, f- the flaws in the original design became way more obvious and you know when when you're 11 it's like wow this is such a new experience this is really cool and now that I'm older I can poke a little more holes in it or say well this game was really great for this at this time period but now there there are other games or better games that do this and and it kind of took a lot of the magic out of it yeah and it's that's somewhat disappointing when that happens you know because you're you know you're you're killing your own you know, you're killing your own memories. Like, I have great memories of playing the, you know, FAS's Star Trek game. Their, their Star Trek spaceship or Starship Tactical Simulator or whatever the full name was. I, and I've gone back and I've, you know, gone out on the internet and found where you can get the full text and get the ships, the uh, data sheets for the ships and all that. And I'm... I'm hesitant to even consider playing it because I've, I've got the feeling that it's just going to completely wreck my memories. I, I, I'm the same way, Jay. Um, I, in fact, when we started talking about this specific subject of, you know, memories, um, I, I immediately went to, uh, you know, those those afternoons on the weekends that uh, we would get together with our buddies and, and uh, play the game or... You know the the great Mother's Day massacre. You brought it up. I didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if I didn't, you would. No. So, <laughs> me? Never. Yeah. So, um, you know, the memories are there, and I think for me, there. If I want to play Star Trek with the ships, there's other games out there that I think would scratch my itch a lot better right? because going back and looking at it just like you uh, said with uh, Renegade Legion I have a feeling that it would just it would be a task yeah uh, and it would blow holes the size of uh, uh, 12 gauge shotgun uh, blasts and in, in, you know into the memories and I, I don't want that I, I want to remember the fun that we had those afternoons in high school when we summit. Yeah, and, and I've run, you know, I've run Star Trek games using Full Thrust. Or actually yeah. even Full Thrust Light. And 
And again, it's one of those situations where, you know, I get to use Star Trek ships and I get to, you know, throw out lines from the show and the movies and have a grand time without being burdened with admittedly a cumbersome rule set. And part of that, I think, is just simply, you know, game design had or has progressed, you know, significantly since then. But, you know, then again, we're talking about Full Thrust, which isn't more than, what, probably 10 years at most removed from from the FASA game? Yeah. Yeah. At the very most, 10 years. um, Yeah. we, We were playing in... Uh, Star Trek uh, Fastest Simulator uh, 89, 90, 91 Yeah, somewhere in there for sure So, yeah, it's Yeah, nostalgia ain't what it used to be for sure And I, I think there's there's something there um, I, I guess tread carefully, I guess, is what I'm trying to say Yeah um, Tread carefully Justin, that's a great point about that About Carriers, carriers at War Um you think it was just a, a function of old game design, well, or I mean, were the game mechanics themselves archaic, or was it just not the experience that you remembered it because well, your tastes have changed? The first thing I want to say is the these guys at Matrix Games clearly did their work in trying to make it updated and relevant. Again, they cleaned up the graphics and and so on, but as you know, with every game, you've got to make compromises. I mean, you're never going to be able to fully simulate you know a carrier engagement from 70 years ago and part of it was sure. I'd read a lot more on carrier warfare over the last couple decades with uh, books like Shattered Sword and the first okay. team and had a much better idea of how these things really happen you know whereas when I was 11 okay the carriers meet and they shoot each other and you sink one of them whereas when I'm playing it now it's a lot easier to see what compromises they had to make. Well, I, I think that's that's certainly that's certainly a fair assessment. You know, coming and not just your taste changing, but also your expectations of of what right. is being simulated. Right. If, if, yeah, I if you're going to fight the battle of midway and you sink the entire opposing fleet, yeah, when you're younger, it's really exciting. When you're older, you're like, there is no way that was ever going to happen. And so you get to see more of, well, how was I able to do that? Oh, because the game lets you do this and this and this. Well, that's not very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I think that's a pretty good segue since you talk about updated graphics and whatnot. Uh, that's a good way to segue our discussion into two of the games we played over the weekend. The first being Junta. Um, Justin, you were excited to, to bring this out. You you ran it during CJ3 with, I think, some success. Uh, we, you know, to wit, you know, to... With some success to to reiterate what you said earlier with, you know, just the the nuance of the, of the venue that we were in. We weren't able to play for very long. But you went ahead and brought it to J3... And now I would argue, and this is some of the discussion I wanted to get into was the difference between board gamers and sci-fi fantasy uh, war gamers is that I, from what I can tell, board gamers don't get concerned about 
a game being quote unquote old or out of print. Uh, before, for example, before uh, Merchant of Venus was reprinted, you know, there's a pretty brisk trade online of the original Merchant of Venus because it's a pretty apparently it's a pretty outstanding game, and people, I guess, had played it on the convention circuit and wanted to get that experience themselves. Just as an example, or the Dune board game, also I guess was uh, pretty. Uh, pretty popular, and but you know the publishers lost the the IP rights, and so it got republished as, under a completely different IP. Uh, so, I guess what I'm getting at is here we've got this game that originally came out in 1979. I did a, just a touch of research. Um, the version that you brought is the 1985 version, and then there was another updated version brought out in 2015. So. Justin, tell us about Junta briefly. So I thought a little bit about how I would try to explain Junta to an audience and about the idea of seven families battling for power over a country. And I I can't think of any sort of contemporary example that most people might be able to resonate with for something like that. Um, except, of course, obviously Game of Thrones. Uh but the idea in Junta, right. it's a government simulator in the loosest sense of the words. Uh, it's very not politically correct. It's, it's set in a fictitious Latin American country yeah. in the 80s, the Republica de los Bananas. And you're one of these seven families that's fighting to loot the country of its budget until it all runs out and everyone flees to Switzerland. So while most of the game is fought over securing power and influence. The real objective is to secure money so that when the game ends, when the money runs out, whoever is the most left wins. And we actually had two winners, one of whom was a person I expected um, because he, he had been playing that way. But the other winner I hadn't expected and he had read the rules and that was all he played for was just every turn, how much money can I get in my account? And over time, that wound up being a very successful strategy for him, even though he had almost no power or influence for the entire game. Right, right. Yeah, it was, it was just a it was a blast to play. I think you clocked it at four and a half hours, including a lunch break. And I, I would argue that's a, a very successful game session. If you can play a game to succession like that, or to success, if you can play a game to success like that in four and a half hours, including lunch, that's, you know, that's... That checks all well, the Well, one of the reasons it worked so well this time is, one, I actually played the expedited rules. Um, every turn you draw eight money cards, uh, but there's an additional rule that says you can pull four more and just discard them to make the game go by even faster, and that's what we did. Uh, historically, the biggest problem I've always had running the game is mm -hmm. people losing interest. So I decided that two things that had to happen were the game had to run flawlessly like a railroad like there couldn't be any hiccups or bumps into it had to end as fast as possible before people got bored so we we had uh you yeah. know i had my laptop open i had an excel spreadsheet i was logging in all the votes positions i mean basically what it really needs is a dedicated umpire who can keep everyone on task and i think that was one of the reasons why we had so much success with it this year mm -hmm. now with you playing the 1985 version 
Uh, I, like I said, I did a little bit of research. There are some minor changes to to the 2015 version, uh, most notably uh, graphic changes. There's a few minor rule uh, changes. I don't know if you've looked at those J3 or not. J3 was Justin. the first time I ever uh, met people who wanted to play Junta more than once. There, I, I may look and see what the differences are in the rule sets, but up until now, there, there was no interest in it. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the, the 2015 edition, apparently the first fire rule in combat was removed. So each side fires uh, sim virtually simultaneously in each volley, which is, I guess, would probably be the biggest difference. But there's some other cosmetic differences, I guess. I guess what I'm getting down to is if I were to try to buy the game, since I like the version that you've been running, I'd go for the 1985 version. I'd try to find it. But I haven't looked on eBay or Amazon or anything like that to see what the cost is. The 2015 version you can get for about 30 bucks. Well, the problem with reprinting a game like this, and to be rather blunt, like you said, about, is you're doing it to sell product. And this is a seven-player yeah. game. There, there's not a whole lot of market out there for seven-player board games that take, you know, four to six hours. So... Right. Uh, the the other game I, I looked at, the Republic of Rome, a, a kind of a similar game set in the ancient world, they had a similar issue where there was an old game and everyone loved it and then they did a reprint and they tried to streamline the rules a lot more to get more people on board and apparently there was a lot of controversy over that version and people walked away really mm -hmm. angry. So I could see the Hunter guys saying, well, listen, we'll, we'll change like maybe one thing to make it go a little bit faster, but let's not... Anyone who's going to buy this game is probably already going to buy it. Right. Now, I definitely had a good time playing it. I can definitely see playing it again. Now, we've played some older games at J3 before. Uh, the first year, uh, we played Advanced Civilization. And no, I'm not talking some newfangled stuff from Sid Meier. I'm talking the original Avalon Hill Advanced Civilization with the Western Map Board extension. Mm -hmm. Just a phenomenal game. But again, it's one of these games that to really get the full experience you're talking about is you know six or seven player game lasting six hours and that's that's a pretty significant investment in time even not counting investment in money um trying to think of some other older games we played guys want to kick in with some older games we played well full thrust we've done full thrust we'll, we'll leave out diplomacy because that's a whole other thing <laughs> Yeah, well, we haven't played Diplomacy at J3. That's why there's been more than one J3. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, no, there have been... I've run a J3, a play-by-email, for lack of a better term, Diplomacy game, if you recall, through the J3. I, I tried to forget it. <laughs> um, I, I think that was where I met all of your friends as they repeatedly stabbed me in the back. <laughs> well, yeah. Hey, that's Diplomacy. Well, no game of diplomacy. He was one of them, Chris. He was one of them. Um, yeah, the, no game of diplomacy is complete until someone flips a table. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm hesitant to actually have a game of diplomacy run at J3. I think we've got, for the most part, the right people to play it because I know, for the most part, everyone will understand that it's just a game. But yeah, diplomacy is one of those games. It it is a game that ends friendships. I've I've or can end friendships. What I've decided because I, I've I've run it a few times myself, and 
I, I you know, have a lot of friends I like to game with, and you want to make sure people are having fun. I wouldn't run it with any less than teams of two hmm. for each country, because that way you can't get mad at a single person. It kind of, it kind of spreads the rage around a little bit. Yeah. You can get annoyed, but it doesn't have the same personal anger that yeah. you'll have at a yeah. specific individual. You know, I wonder, that might be a neat exercise, actually. Because there's, what, seven countries or seven nations represented? That might, yes. that might be cool to do something along the lines of you have a minister of defense and you have a minister of state. That, that, that uh, sounds very similar to the uh, game that you and uh, James ran down in Carbondale that one year. Yeah, that was that was an interesting experiment that I don't think I want to repeat because um, <laughs> it just su- it took such a toll. Um, oh yeah, Justin, just and the audience, just to give give get everybody on the same sheet of music. Uh, my friend James and I devised this. Yeah, you could call it a 4X game, or basically a combination of civilization, diplomacy, and Dune. <laughs> you know, because there's very, you know, very definitely influenced the the setting we had created. Uh, it was a double-blind committee game, for lack of a better term, except that each power, each planet, each empire, whatever you want to call it, had a military leader and a diplomatic leader but they were never in the same room. So, like, the military people were out in the field, and the diplomatic people were, well, wherever the diplomats meet, and they would pass notes back and forth between each other. James and I were the umpires, and we told our we told our players up front, this is going to be a 12-hour process. We're going to have to have your undivided attention for all three game sessions during this game day, and we'll take breaks for lunch and dinner, but we are going 12 hours, and no, I think one or two guys bailed out at that point. But it was an interesting uh, exercise. The game itself didn't run that well. Um, we had done a lot of development, but not much in the way of playtesting, and there was a lot of you know, by-the-seat-of-our-pants type stuff going on. And I'd like to redo something like that, but I could see diplomacy as being a, a good way of doing that. But not in the in the not in a double blind situation or a two room situation. Um, well, when I ran Junta at CJ three, as you as you remember, what I said is, we'll play for an hour, and then if no one's having fun, we'll just stop, and then if people are having fun, we'll play for another hour. Yeah. But but I very much wanted to build in an escape hatch so that I'm not saying you're going to play this game for you know however many hours it takes. <laughs> Well, I, I think if that's you know managing expectations is important, and that, that's certainly something that could be brought up in a in an episode about running a convention game. But uh, mm-hmm. well, actually, I've already done an episode on running a convention game. Uh, maybe we can manage expectations when talking about committee games, Justin, later. Uh, but anyway, sure. um, no, I, I think today. what's that? Is it something else I've tossed up? When you mention dead games and, and board games, my eye immediately turned to a game I have on my bookshelf called uh, Cold War. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of this, Justin? I've heard it's, of Twilight Struggle, but that's the only Cold War game I've heard of. You know, it's funny you mention that. I did a little bit of checking to see just how dead this game is. If you do a search for, quote, Cold War board game, um, 
on Google Images, you get one picture of the cover of the actual Cold War game, and about half the screen is Twilight Struggle. It was published by Victory Games, which is an imprint of Avalon Hill, and it is one of my all-time favorite board games. I actually picked it up about 20 years ago at a little game shop, never had a chance to play it until my kids got old enough. And it's kind of the same problem, you know, you mentioned, Justin, how to find enough people that I can put together that are interested in this kind of thing. So I made my kids play it because I could. <laughs> uh, but it is, uh, I think it would lend itself well to that kind of play where you have somebody trying to cut diplomatic deals and then somebody else trying to actually um, you know, deploy forces to the board. It's a very high-level geopolitical kind of game set in the you know, 70s, 80s. You've got the U.S., you've got the Soviet Union, uh, Europe, and um, China. And you don't fight with armies. You try to establish political influence or economic influence or military influence and try to work your way up to control of various regions of, of the world. Um, I thought that is, it is a great game. Um, there's very little interest in it on the internet. Yeah, I kind of picked that up as here's a canonical example of a dead game. And yet there's no reason for it to be. I mean, I think it could serve as, you know, you spend the first two classes of an intro to 70s, 80s poli-sci playing this game. It is a reasonable simulation of geopolitics of that era. It's not about establishing control with, with military forces and armies. It's about establishing influence and then trying to build that up. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Uh, keep that handy, because I think you've definitely got a captive audience at J3, or CJ3. Yep. Um, yeah, I'd definitely like to see I that will program. bring that next time. Yeah, I, I definitely think that would be a welcome addition to our to our stable of games. Um, let's shift gears slightly, and I want to talk about the Warhammer 40,000 Necromunda mashup that we played. Um now, as far as, as I mentioned earlier, Warhammer 40,000, regardless of the edition you play or prefer, definitely not a dead game. Like I said, 8th... This is interesting because 8th edition just got published. Uh, Games Workshop themselves have done a number of things to attract prior players, prior customers. Uh, you know, as I discussed with Mike Hobbs in a previous episode. And they have rejuvenated a significant amount of their old player base, myself included. You know, Joel, when you talk about reading the 5th edition book and getting the same feelings that you did when you first read it, I'm getting some of those same feelings reading some of the, some of the literature they put out for 8th edition, you know, back, you know some, back to when I first read the Rogue Trader book. And it's very much similar. They're, they're going for a similar ethos, maybe not a similar eth aesthetic, but definitely a similar ethos to those days. And it, it, it's gotten me pretty excited. I'm looking forward to, to getting some 8th edition games in. In the meantime, well, actually, from what I've seen, 8th edition is very similar in playstyle to second edition, which is basically what we played on on this past J3. Now, Necromunda were the actual rules that we used, which are based on second edition 40k, but Necromunda is, is dead as 
debt is going to get, officially speaking. But as I've mentioned in other places on this podcast in the past, there's a kind of an undercurrent uh, that calls itself Inquisimunda, where you're taking more characterful forces, smaller forces, skirmish-type forces, and playing smaller games, almost uh, almost in a role-play style. Uh, and the Inquisa part comes from the uh, an older game that they had called Inquisitor, which came out in the early 2000s. And it used 54mm figures, and they wanted it to be more of a uh, more more of a visually striking game with the larger figures. But, uh, well, I say Necromunda's dead, but here they go resurrecting it and reskinning Necromunda and calling it Shadow War Armageddon. So, if a game is, if a game system is brought back by its parent company, but under a different name, is it still dead? It'd be more of a reincarnation. Yeah. You know, same soul, different body. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I don't know about the soul part, but um, anyway, just very, very exciting. Just to give some history on Necromunda, it originally came out in 1995 with a uh, with a re-release online only PDF in 2003, and I've I've read I've read certain sections of both just in comparison, and there doesn't seem to be any major changes. Now, Warhammer 40,000 first came out, the Rogue Trader book came out in 1987, and then 2nd edition in 93, 3rd in 98, 2004, 2008, 2012, 2014, and now 8th in 2017. Um, There's been some constant tinkering with it, with major rewrites for 2nd, 3rd, and now 8th editions. So... Chris, I know you've played quite a bit of 40K. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said you started, what, 4th or 5th edition when you were in Austin? Yeah, um, I mean, of course, you know, played a couple of times uh, after you got uh, your Rogue Trader game, you know, book and, and stuff for Christmas that one year, but really didn't do much with 2nd or 3rd. Uh, got it pretty heavily into it in 4th edition. Um when it came out and I was looking to get back into gaming as a whole and uh, and, and that's whole as in what I throw money into <laughs> but uh, GW likes it when you buy their figures exactly uh, and then 5th uh, edition played uh, some 5th edition and then com- pretty much lost interest in it A didn't really have anybody to uh, play with Uh, even though there's a huge community in Austin it was very centered on the uh, tournament style play which Mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan of Uh, the the whole uh, power player type thing just got on my nerves and I also uh, reintroduced myself to um, being interested in historical gaming. Yeah. So I shifted in in Austin at that point in time. That was a shift of where you actually go to play at that point. Right. Um, Completely different store. So there there wasn't even an influence of 40K at 
the new store that I was uh, that I was frequenting. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, fifth edition, sixth edition came around, seventh edition came around, and I paid no addition, uh, attention to it. Now eighth has come around, and from what little perusing I've done on uh, in the books that you had here at J3, I'm interested. Yeah. Now, Joel, I know that you hadn't had any previous experience with Warhammer 40,000 at all. Justin, have, have you dealt with it at all through either the original games or any of the computer games or the reading any of the background novels, anything like that? No, I'm afraid I'm I, I'm not much use on this one. Yeah, well, also, unfortunately, you had to leave us early and weren't able to participate. The... I will say, I, I've been ahead, doing you know, fantasy sci-fi board gaming for... 15 years now and it's practically impossible to spend any time you know, on the internet environment if you're involved in that kind of gaming and not have at least some awareness of you know the warp and space marines and daka daka and you know blood for the blood god and milk for his cornflakes that kind of thing but i've never played the rules and have never played really any of the the warhammer either fantasy or 40k uh, universe but you know that that does that does point out to me, you know, Jay, we talked about the fact that, you know, rules sell minis. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say something else that sells minis that you know, you've kind of touched on is the fluff. You know, the yeah. rules for 40K have changed over the years, but I think some of those those fictional themes are relatively consistent. I yeah, I, I would say, good. yeah, speaking big picture, it's unchanged. Now, there's some there's some minor points here and there that have changed, but when you're talking big picture, you're looking it's a nihilistic universe where in the grim darkness of the far future there is only war you know, on untold millions of planets, the forces of the Imperium battle the alien and demonic threats and billions die defending the Imperium and and that sort of thing. That's that's been consistent from almost from day one. There's there's some hints of that in Rogue Trader. One of the great things about getting the the Rogue Trader reprint recently is I've been able to re explore some of that and that's it's still there. It's not as dire, I guess you could say, as it became with the introduction of the Chaos Threat and the Tyranids and the Necron and all these other huge apocalyptic threats but yeah the the same basic themes are there and they're you know if you're paying even half even if you're paying even a, a modicum of attention to it you're going to see you know you're going to see that resounding throughout the rest of gaming culture now something interesting about our game I'll mention uh, Joel speaking of dead games you brought figures for Vor to use, and I had no problem with that whatsoever. Specifically from the Shard faction, which are a crystalline life form, and we use them counts as Tyranids, Gene Stealers, and Termagants, and Hormagons, and Gargoyles, and whatnot. And I was totally fine with that. But bringing figures from very much a dead game to play a dead version of an active game. So I, I thought that's that's a dead game doubleheader right there. It's very meta. Yeah. 
Well, even more so when you consider that Vor the Maelstrom was kind of a a hack on Warhammer, except you played with D10s. Instead of the warp, you'd have the maw. Um, yeah. Instead of being 40,000 years in the future, it was you know roughly hyper-modern. When it came out, it was definitely an attempt to kind of play on those same themes that, that uh, Warhammer yeah. appealed to in the fantasy sci-fi crowd. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I just thought that was a an interesting choice, and I wholeheartedly support it. So, yeah, keep keep doing that. Your crystalline forces are going to be welcome back anytime. Um, now, we did tinker with the rules a little bit to suit ourselves, and I'm going to have a blog post discussing some of that. If, if you're if you're really into 40k, then that might be a role, especially if you're really into second edition 40k, it might be worth looking at. But, you know, it, it definitely goes to show you that just with a little imagination, you can take quote-unquote dead games and, and resurrect them quite easily. And, you know, speaking for myself as the, you know, running the game as a GM, I had a heck of a lot of fun. And like I said, it brought back a lot of good memories of times that I had playing Necromunda and 2nd Edition 40K. And really, it was a good touchstone for me going into this episode, knowing that, yeah, this is not how the game's played anymore. And for the most part, from what I understand, people have a lot more competitive mindset and tournament mindset. But, you know, that's what a good game does well it's not even a good game it could be a terrible game and you know, plenty of people think that 40k is not a great game and you know there are definitely arguments you know there are definitely points in favor of that argument but it's not about the rules it's about the people you're playing with and right i would say that's that's one advantage that you really get with you know the dead games some of my favorite games uh you know from warmaster Side, Star Grunt, Full Thrust. You know, these are rules that haven't been updated, and shoot, I think War Master is the newest of those, and it's over a decade. Yeah. But the great thing about that is you're not going to run into that, that tournament mindset. You know, that person who says, oh, you're a millimeter off, and so I'm not going to give that to you. It's going to be a friendly game with people who play because they think that game is the coolest game they've played all month. Right. It's definitely a lot of that has to do with mindset also you know going into the session I said you know I'm going to go off memory for most stuff I'm going to look up some stuff if I need to but just keep that in mind and we're not going to have rules arguments and we didn't you know and you could have you know I've had a lot of fun playing Monopoly which by all accounts from anybody who considers themselves a serious gamer to be a terrible game and let's face it Monopoly is a pretty crummy game as hey, far Monopoly as it's a great game if you play it with the rules of written <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe so however <laughs> the, the problem remains that anybody you know the house rule you know the, the popular house rule with free parking you know how many families don't follow that you know so yeah it's just one of those things that it, it persists. But anyway, I've had a lot of fun playing Monopoly because of the people I was with. You know, and I've had times when I've been playing what are considered to be some of the best games around that have just been terrible times because the people I was with that were either just utter jerks or 
run into it or what have you. So, yeah, it's, it's attitude has a lot to do with it, I think. Exactly, I'd agree 100. percent I'd give kind of a maybe maybe from our perspective as strategic gamers, maybe kind of a silly example. Um, you know, I played Pictionary with a friend of mine. This this has been probably 25 years ago. It's a great mm-hmm. game, hysterical, fun, and they went back home and introduced it to their family. And their family played it competitively to win. No fun whatsoever. So yeah, it's all about that attitude. Are you there to have fun? You're there to socialize. If you're there just to win, I feel like you're missing the point of gaming. Yeah. Winning is important. It's why we keep score. <laughs> but the point is to have fun. Yeah, and that's that's certainly a lot to that. We're getting about to the time where we need to think about wrapping up. Let me ask you guys one question to close, and that is, whether we've discussed it or not, what is one dead game that you'd like to see resurrected? Not necessarily commercially, but just brought back for play, maybe with your group, maybe at J3, maybe at a convention. I'll go first. I am a real fan of Games Workshop's Warmaster. Mm-hmm. It's the Warhammer Fantasy universe. It's a different scale. You have, you know, notionally you have great mass formations of troops as opposed to, uh, you know, just the warbands. And it is almost epic in scale. You get some of their little miniatures out, you get them on the table, and it looks like uh, medieval or an ancient or fantasy mass combat battle. The rules are very simple. The rules favor sound tactics. There's moral components to the rules. There's ranged combat that isn't too effective, but does have an effect on the game. Um, command and control is a significant piece of the game. And it's not just a matter of line them up and knock them down. So if any rule set was going to be resurrected and brought back to popularity, I'd love for that to be Warmaster. Okay, well, I mean, there's an argument there that you know you take a look at black powder pike and shot uh, hail caesar all three written by rick Priestley, the author of war master and there's there are definite parallels there so well, so something to consider there there's various commander games the future war commander the butch creek commander and oh yeah games that have, have those same uh, I just have a special oh. place in my heart for Warmaster. Oh yeah, the Commander series, those those are unashamedly <laughs> lifted from from Warmaster. Certainly. Great designers good designers borrow, great designers steal. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Justin? Well this isn't a board game, but but it is a war game. And it's uh, 12 o'clock high a mm-hmm. uh, a Gary Grigsby game that models the 8th Air Force bombing campaign over Europe and while I know there's a lot of tactical flight simulators that have come out recently I've had a very difficult time finding games that model strategic level air campaigns there just doesn't seem to be much of an interest in it okay and who published that originally 
Uh, you can actually still buy it. Buy it. It's. It, it, I, I get all my stuff through Matrix Games. They do most of the hardcore computer war gaming, but okay. it's from like 2006. Um, hasn't really been updated. But again, there I haven't really seen any new additions to the genre in the last decade. Okay. Broski. Actually, you know, I, I hadn't really thought of anything, but uh, after Joel mentioned that one Cold War game, I'm, I'm all for that. But, you know, dig into that and see see what uh, happens. As for, you know, bringing something uh, you know, back to life that uh, I'd have played previously, it's something that we've uh, we played down in Austin a lot, or not a lot, but uh, a smattering of here and there was uh, Aeronef. Oh, yeah. The flying battleships, which kind of w- almost got brought back with Leviathans mm-hmm. uh, by Catalyst Games, but just horrible mismanagement of, well, just about the entire uh, business model kept that from really taking off and being big. There, there was a huge internet presence uh, with it, a lot of excitement with that the idea of uh, you know flying battleships coming back but going back to uh, Aeronef that, it was a pretty solid from what I remember um, you know, going back at this point almost 10 years now from when it was I was introduced to it and it's had to be at least five or ten years from that point earlier uh, to when it was actually uh, introduced to the world if not older and uh, you know I, I just I like the idea of these big hulking ships flying through the air lobbing shells at each other for some mm-hmm. reason yeah it's just really I really dig that that aesthetic sure sure um for me this is i'll, I'll second this... that if i'm allowed to because i never oh, yeah. the first time around that i thought that looked like a great deal of fun now is it are you sp- saying specifically the aeronef rules or are you open to other rules just with the big steampunky kind of flying uh, at, at this point any any rules i mean heck um you know i've got two core sets of leviathans and um, I think either one or two one each of the British and uh, French ships by themselves and I've been toying with the idea and I've actually worked a little bit on uh, SSDs for uh, using the ships and uh, using full thrust or full thrust light yeah I, I think I think you need to get on that for CG3 I yep. unabashedly think you need to <laughs> get on that for CJ3. That's my project. There you go. There you go. Hey, and the great thing is I don't have to paint. What do you mean you don't have to paint? The Leviathan ships are pa- painted. They're painted? Yeah. Oh, are they. Oh, I think they just primed them and threw a wash on them, right? Hey, that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> they're actually right. not that bad looking. They're They're actually pretty decent looking. Yeah. Well, luckily, you guys, I already answered this question this past weekend. I wanted to resurrect 2nd Edition 40K with Necromunda, and we made that happen. So, thanks for helping with that. I had a blast doing that. Um, I'm continuing to have a blast 
getting ready for CJ3 and what we're going to continue doing. Um, I have looked for something that we could all contribute to and all play at CJ3 for a number of years, and I think I found it with this. Um, everyone brought their their own gang, their own force. Um, I'm going to go into more detail in my blog post about it. Keep your eyes open for that. But uh, it was, like I said earlier, is the Necromunda rules, but using Warhammer 40,000 Second Edition forces. So using the army list that came out during that time, uh, I told the players to put together a 200-point list. You know, no holds barred, do whatever you want. You know, take one character from one list and a character from another and do whatever you want and make, have it make sense within its own uh, within its own context and go with it and you guys did that and it was a lot of fun and I'm really looking forward to it expanding was. on that expanding the story, keeping the story going and having a lot of fun with that so I've, I've already answered my own question so any any final words on dead gaming, guys? The other thing I like about dead games is I don't have to worry that my army lists are all going to have to be redone. That I need to rethink my playstyle. Play, I get to play that way. Yep, exactly. So, on that note, as always, if the war gaming you're having isn't any fun, you make it fun. That is all. The Veteran Wargamer is copyright J. Arnold, 2017. Be sure to leave a review on iTunes. Discussion on the blog at theveteranwargamer.blogspot.com. Music courtesy of bensound.com.